This is the Blue Cloud Podcast, empowering the entrepreneurial lifestyle with insights on the leading trends in the mobile and digital landscape, turning ideas to empires. Hello, 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 everybody. This is Carter Thomas of BlueCloudSolutions.com. Yes, I am coming to you from Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm on a pretty solid world tour right now. I'm here for about a week. Uh, I'm actually recording this in a closet because it's very loud out in the Airbnb I'm in. That's the glamorous life that, uh, you know, as a marketer, we get to live. But I have freedom and flexibility, and that's what it's all about. Today, we have one of the best interviews I think that I've been a part of, uh, not because I'm very good at interviewing, but because Ted, who you'll meet, is one of the most impressive entrepreneurs in the app space that I've met. First of all, he has a Wikipedia page, which I talk about in the interview. That's the first question I asked him. But this is the biography that uh, comes out of that Wikipedia page. You can find it if you just type in his name, Ted Nash. He is an English internet and mobile media entrepreneur. That's the United Kingdom, best known for launching his site, Little Gossip. Uh, and founding TapDAQ, that's T-A-P-D-A-Q, a mobile advertising exchange. Nash is also known for developing various apps and websites and for his public speaking engagements. In 2015, Ted Nash was named a Forbes 30 under 30. Uh, personally, I don't think that do, does Ted nearly as much justice. His latest company, TapDAQ, is one of the most revered cross-promotion ad exchange platforms out there. They've raised... Uh, millions of dollars. At first, I thought it was only one or two million dollars. It turns out they're up to about seven million dollars, which you'll hear all about. And just the way that they're approaching mobile ads, the way they're approaching data science and really optimizing monetization for indie developers and people who want to just extend the lifetime value of their customers. Ted has some of the most insightful, uh, thoughtful, and just brilliant insights into the app business. Uh, one of the smartest people I've met in a very long time. It was a real pleasure talking to him about this. And Ted has also agreed to come do a uh, live Q&A fireside chat at our Blue Cloud Amsterdam event, which is in September on the weekend of 17, September 17th and 18th. If you're interested in that, I would strongly urge you to come check it out, to join up. Uh, you can go to bluecloudsolutions.com to get more information about that. But Ted will be there giving a chat, and you can you can sync up with him and connect with him there. Uh, this conversation is awesome. If you want, if you're interested in venture capital, if you're interested in the bigger bigger side of the app business outside of the, just the products, you will get a lot out of this. An amazing entrepreneur. I am very proud to introduce you to Ted Nash. This is the Blue Cloud Podcast with Carter Thomas. Ted, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. And uh, you're coming in from the UK, right? I am indeed. Yep, London. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's funny. I'm down in San Diego and it's it's like cloudy every day this time of year. So you guys probably get more sun than I am. Potentially, but actually cloudy and a bit of drizzle is basically the British weather year on year. So <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, what's funny is I was... Uh, obviously, um, we, I think we've actually had some email exchanges back and forth over the last few years, but mm -hmm. I, uh, I was just doing some, some research for this interview and I, the first thing that came up is a pretty legit Wikipedia page 
<laughs> I know from experience, it's actually, it's very hard to get a Wikipedia page. Uh, so I just, for my own curiosity, like at what point did that happen in your career? Did uh, you get, a, you get the page up, a, I should say? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. Honestly, um, the first thing to say is that it was probably came off the back of a, of a previous venture, which had nothing to do with mobile. So, so to be honest with you, the thing that I suppose people do know me for before mobile would have been a social network called Little Gossip. And Little Gossip was launched in the UK. It was basically, it was basically like Whisper and Secret, but in web form five years before they launched. So it was all about you know, anonymous gossip around schools and things like that. And it went absolutely cra- you know, crazy viral. Um, and so much so that I eventually had to shut it down sort of two weeks after it launched because it was bringing the UK's sort of schooling system into disrepute. And it was at that point where um, I'd never had so much media attention and it wasn't media attention that I'd necessarily wa- you know, <laughs> wanted. Um, so a you know, true, true story there is I grew up in, a, in, a, in the countryside in the southwest of England and I'll never forget the second day after launching Little Gossip outside the sort of farmhouse um, gates, which is where I live in, in some, where I used to live in Somerset. Um, there were media, you know, from the Telegraph, BBC, Daily Mail, The Sun, The Times, literally there with with cameras, um, wanting interviews and wanting to talk to Ted Nash. It was really at that point then that um, a huge amount of media came off the back of it, and actually it was at that point that I guess my I guess my notoriety or my publicity around the web um, and around the tech ecosystem started to explode um, so Wikipedia page to be honest with you I have no idea who put it up I have no idea who wrote it but you can see that a lot of the references they use um, point to or certainly when it first started point to little gossip hmm. and then obviously all the press and the media off the back of that has, has been added to it um, hmm. I guess you know once once you have a page up there, you know the admins and things like that maybe get pinged with different references and, and media as as it happens. So it's one of these things I suppose that just grows now quite naturally over time. Yeah, that's but yeah, it's cool. It's a good good point of reference, definitely. Yeah, I guess the the takeaway from that is like if you want to go to Wikipedia, do something that gets you <laughs> a lot of press, whether it be good or bad. <laughs> I think exact exactly that. But also, if you want a Wikipedia page. Um, don't focus on getting a Wikipedia page. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Um, and so, yeah, like you mentioned, Little Gossip, I, I I saw a little bit, and that site is no longer around. But um, after Little Gossip, I think there was a few more ventures, and then you you got into the app business with a couple apps that were, uh, I guess, what I would say is I, they're not the kind of apps that you would show your grandma. No, uh, around the holidays. Not. I, mean, so- I mean, that that was um, those were the type of applications that were built again, basically for me and my buddies at school at the time. So you can imagine it's basically sixteen-year-old pub humor, I guess we'd call it in Britain, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it was built. It was really built as a testbed because this was when the App Store had launched in two thousand and eight, and there was no, there was never for me. It was never about you know these could ever become sustainable businesses that have longevity. It was more about let's put an application out that I think might be able to go viral, um, but as a great test bed um, to start to learn how App Store marketing actually works and what it's like to build an application in the first place. Mm. So I put that particular application out. It was called Face Rate. Um, it went through you know, a number of different names throughout its, its life. And within honestly, within six months or so, we'd cleared six million installs. And if you think that's almost six, seven years ago now, 
that's a hell of a lot of installs um, when the App Store first launched, and that really was before Freemium. So that was at the point where I realized technology, for me, which had been a passion, could actually become a, a career and, and one that you can you know, profit financially from as well. It's interesting you said that because I remember when I was back in college, um, you know, I was an okay student, but like I just did not like school, and you yeah. know, you couldn't pay me to to read a read a textbook. Yeah. However, for some reason, I would stay up for days on end, like literally stay up every night, uh, trying to figure out these little stupid hacks of things that had never been done before, and like you know, some of them were were completely legit. Some of them were not that legit, you know, come up with like pizza card systems and, you know, like the whole thing. And one question I had is, um, you know, what, what did you think the thought process was going into that? Right. Like you could have built a lot of apps and obviously you said, um, it it was with your buddies and you wanted to do that, but you know, you could have, you could have taken that any particular way. Like, was there any, any thought process? Like you did little gossip, you did these apps and they're kind of riding this line. Yeah. Was it was it like what what was the the hope when you when you were doing something like that? Well, I've I've said it before in previous interviews. Tr- truthfully, every company I have ever built, whether it be a catastrophic failure, which is what it usually is, <laughs> or a moderately or modestly successful one, there is one string of commonality that I can plot between each of them. And that really is either solving my own problems or trying to add a bit of fun to my peer group. So for me, Little Gossip is a great example. Whilst I was building businesses and trying to build different products at school, one of the things I genuinely missed out on was the social life. I would never go to the parties, um, and I was always the type type of person that, as opposed to going out and hanging out with friends, I'd rather be building things in my bedroom. So an incredibly anti-social outlook on college life, I suppose, but to compensate for that and to solve my own problem, that's when I thought, I'm going to build this platform that's going to enable all my buddies at the time, um, you know, both male and female, to post about what happened the night before. And that, for me, was a great way of keeping you know, in touch with my friends and seeing what I'd missed. And that, truthfully, is why Little Gossip came around. And similarly, um, with Face Rates, another good example, we, you know, always trying to find new girlfriends and our girlfriends are trying to find new boyfriends and likewise and everyone it was it's very sort of narcissistic at that age as teenagers so the 14 15 16 17 year year old kids you know everyone knows what they're like and it's it's basically all about image and that was when a lot of people were you know looking at each other and I don't know how attractive that person is etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and I just thought maybe technology can solve this problem of course it can't it's a ridiculous it's a ridiculous thing to think that it ever could However, again, you can see that that was how the application was born. And I never launched it, as I said, with the mindset that this could be a sustainable business or one with longevity. It was, again, built for my peer group. And so just so I understand, face rate, is that like a hot or not type of thing? Exactly. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. Got it. Um, when you went, when you were, uh, so you get 6 million installs and yep. you have this realization of, okay, there's something here. When you say freemium didn't exist, does that mean like in-app purchases weren't available yet? Yeah, so in-app purchases didn't just didn't exist, and th- so we had a lot of paid-for downloads on that application, God. Um, and, and it made us you know 
a very nice sum of money for for basically a kid that age. Yeah, I can imagine. That's a lot of that's a lot of beers yeah. at the pub. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah that take a long time for us and uh, well, me and my friends to get through that. I can barely do two pints now. So yeah, Ted's pan. <laughs> yeah. What? Uh, and so now you're working on uh, Tap Deck, which is yeah. a community driven cross promotion platform what, what took you from having this mini app empire over to mm-hmm. a an you know ad network community yeah so we were built and i say we me and my two co-founders and we've been working together for a very long time you know it's very lucky to have i guess a group of group of us who went to school together and were building things together as well and complement one another in different ways we were building this project called project 5000 I blogged about it, and I don't know where that blog post is, but it was the, this was at the point where when we first launched an application, there were 30,000 applications on the store. So it was relatively easy to cut through the noise. Fast forward to now, and even two, three years ago, you know, there was millions of applications on both, both your respective Apple store and the Google Play store. So generating any awareness and putting a lot of time into one application became you know, a huge risk. And the, the reality was a lot of people with, brilliant ideas, innovative content, original content, just weren't, were not generating any awareness whatsoever. And Project 5000 came off the back of, we think it's easier to build 5,000 applications that generate $1 a day, as opposed to one application that does $5,000 a day. So we then sort of started the whole, um, into I guess what people would know as the reskinning model, we got to about probably 150 applications, and they were doing about a dollar a day. So that theory was sort of proved. But trying to get to 5,000 would have taken a long, long time. And actually, we, we sort of asked ourselves, is this really what we want to be doing? But what that highlighted was how broken the discovery channel of the App Store actually is. So that was really when the idea from Tap, of Tap That came around, which is there are developers out there far more talented than us truly far more talented than us building applications that actually can make an impact or even a game that is genuinely exciting to play. But it's never, ever going to be discovered. So the idea of TapDAC at that point was to build this marketplace which would allow developers to find each other by volume of installs but also category and very simply trade users with one another via in-app advertising. We didn't want to build this place whereby Supercell or King or your other big, big sort of app publishers um, could buy all the traffic because you, it does, that does not help um, highlight the best content. So that was really the, the start of TapDAC in 2013, I guess late 2013, and it's sort of grown ever since. Where, where does that name come from? Where does the DAQ, what's that all about? Yeah, so, so the classic us, I suppose, trying to over-intellectualize a solution to a problem. We were convinced that the best way for developers to trade installs was actually basically to create this this proxy layer on top of it as a currency, a digital currency. And we named that currency DAC, D-A-Q. Mm. And we, when we first launched the platform, we DAC was a currency that you'd trade. So if me and yourself, Carter, were trading an install, we wouldn't actually be trading an install. We'd be trading a DAC and the, or a number of DACs. And the reason being, obviously, every install has a different value attached to it. You know, someone in the U.S. is much more valuable than someone in China, theoretically. Right. Um, however, we found that that actually was um, basically too intelligent, I suppose, and that's certainly not a good thing. You, you can; it is possible to 
as I mentioned a bit earlier, over-intellectualize the solution to a problem. And that's definitely what we did. So when developers came onto the platform, they said, we totally get the use case for the platform and how it works, but DAC is just really, really confusing to us. And it wasn't long after getting a lot of feedback like that that people were saying, you have already have a fairly unique offering in TapDAC, but DAC's just really confusing to us. And it was at that point we decided, right, we're going to remove DAC. Um, but obviously DAC has lived on within the name TapDAC. Right. That's that's cool. I never, I never heard yeah. that before. It's funny, too, to... to um, to hear your story because one question that I always get, or not even a question, just kind of a conversation that people want to have about me is this decision about do you mine the gold or do you sell the shovels type of thing, you know? And, yeah. You know, yeah. Are you in the app business? And it's it's one of those <clears throat> decisions that always comes down to, you know, part of its opportunity, part of its skill set, and then part of it's also just, you know, what are you, what are you drawn to? And it's really cool to hear where you're coming from, not only do you see a problem, but there's, you, you kind of realize like there's a lot of other people that are doing stuff that, you know, are better than you at, at mm-hmm. building the apps and you, you should go solve a problem that's, that's different. I think that's a good way to put it for anyone out there who's asking themselves that question. De- definitely. I think it's a, a really important thing to realize your strengths and your weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And, and that, so TapDeck has <clears throat> recently, or maybe not that recently now, you guys raised a pile of money, I think, like $1.4 million. So actually our most recent round of funding was $6 million. Oh, no, okay, great. Yeah, yes. wow. So we uh, closed that in December 2015. So, geez, that's already six months ago. Yeah. <laughs> but saw, yeah, it still feels relatively recent. I, that's, yeah, I saw that $6 million number somewhere. I didn't realize it was around. So, wow, congratulations yeah. on Thank that. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, it's funny. I... So I was at this party, and I'm going to leave as many details out as I can so that no one can like reverse engineer who this is uh, with a friend of mine. And they're like, you're not going to believe this. I just had this meeting last night with a very, very well-known company in Silicon Valley, a venture capital fund. And he goes, yeah, we just raised uh, an enormous amount of money, like more money than I've ever heard of anybody yeah. raising. Yeah. Um, and I was like, are you kidding me? That's unbelievable. And he, he looked at me, he goes, yeah. He goes, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing but now I got to figure out what the f to do with it, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so that's one of the reasons why I've never really gotten into the VC world, uh, other than like tangentially. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm an investor in a little bit, but what does it feel like when someone wires you that amount of money? And you know, I, coming from the app world, we all look at money as like you know whatever hits our bank account is is just there, right? It's app mm-hmm. installs, it's ad revenue. Mm-hmm. But when you get an investor to give you money, there's quarterly reports, there's all this stuff. So what yep. does it feel like? to get that kind of money versus getting, you know, however, like $100,000 off of an app or something like that? Yeah, so one, one of the, I suppose one of the big, I'll start by giving a little lesson, I suppose, from my own experience, which is when you start a company, you are a founder. And for me, that's a really, really exciting time. Um, the world is your oyster, as some people would say. There really is no limit to what you can or cannot do. That, for me, is a super exciting time of a company. Now, there's obviously two ways to go. One is independent, um, and one is raise money. And I suppose people raise money because it's a great way to accelerate growth much faster than if you bootstrap it. The pros and cons of that, obviously, are when you take money, you dilute yourself. And if you are ever to get to a point of liquidity further down the line, which, let's face it, in business, whether you're going independent or taking someone else's money, that's what you're aiming for. Um, But there's there's a very big difference, I think, in remaining independent versus 
starting to take other people's money. One, obviously, accountability, responsibility. But all of a sudden, if founder could be a job title, um, I, I really do see being a founder and being a CEO as two very, very different things. As a founder, I'm you know, really emotionally invested into product, into all aspects of the business, you know, engineering, et cetera, et cetera. And usually because there's, there's maybe a few of you there or a handful, or a handful of you. But as you start to raise money and you build a much bigger team, I would say I've moved from much more of a founder to a CEO. And I spend a lot more time managing people who, granted, are much better at me in product. Um, or leading is probably a better word. Leading people who are building the tap deck product, but also managing upwards as well. So as you say, it is quarterly reporting. We actually have monthly board meetings that we prepare for. But equally, you have to look at your investors and if you are, let's, if you are around a table and every single investor that you've gone to was giving you zero dollars, the people that I've always tried to pick and would advise anyone tries to pick are the people that could add the most value if everyone was giving them zero bucks. In other words, your monthly boards shouldn't, I don't really see them as a reporting mechanism. And I think if, if you do as a CEO, that's probably quite a negative thing to do. Mm. So I always, at the end of the month, um, when our board meetings occur, Use that as a try and use that as a sort of mini working session in terms of tackling some of the biggest challenges we have a, as a company, any networking opportunities that we'd need that they could perhaps help help out with as well. Um, but it is you know raising money. It's a really it's a really strange thing because people celebrate it, and sure it, it is a sort of successful milestone. Um, and there's a huge amount of anticipation, which is I can't wait to raise this money. I can't wait to then deploy it and things like that. But all of a sudden, when you raise it. There's no, I don't know, it's, it's a very strange, I can't necessarily say I've ever had a period of, of pure elation because it's just a, it's a sort of stepping stone towards where you have to get to. Mm. It's, it's, I, I think the, one of the big pieces that stands out for me is curating your investors. I think a yeah. lot of people think that all money is created equal and that's, it couldn't be further from the truth. Exactly, and yeah. As an investor, one of my favorite things is when people call me and say, hey, look, we're having a problem or we're trying to figure this out. You got you have fifteen minutes, yep. and I can actually add value to to a product that I'm invested in, and it's this really cool relationship. And so I think that uh, exactly that makes all the difference. Exactly, I think if you if you have also if you have bad investors, and let's face it, there are probably far more bad investors than there are good ones. Um, they can be incredibly poisonous for you, for you and your company. Yeah. And, and I think work life balance has never been you know never been more important. I think the whole I, this whole reality of being an entrepreneur is is, is probably um, disguised. You know, I've often said that being an entrepreneur for me is is a blessing, both a blessing and a curse. There are there are problems that happen, and they never happen in single file. They always come at once, and it's really what defines you. And to be honest, the most successful people are, I would say, are the most resilient and the most persi- persistent. Yeah. Speaking of which. When you were raising, you know, either round or throughout yeah. your whole uh, tenure with TapDeck, are there any particular meetings where that are memorable that where someone said no that you don't think you'll ever forget? Oh, jeez, um, P- probably not one in particular where it was a a no that I shall ever forget. And the reason I say that is because I have been rejected. I, I could not even count the amount of, amount of no's that I've had. Um, Truthfully, they, they've all had very, very legitimate reasons. And I, I suppose I would remember one if I, if I felt it was unjust or unfair or just not right. 
But the reality is everyone that says no has a very valid reason. It might be, you know, they're actually, you know, in our, actually in our recent round, and I spent a lot of time walking up and down Sand Hill Road, um, that ad, ad tech in general in the mobile ecosystem, a lot, a lot of um, VCs were becoming very wary of it, as in, um, even from a B to C application perspective, how many actually break through the noise and become huge businesses? The answer, very, very few. Um, not too dissimilar to the services then that, that help those developers out. So I actually think in the last couple of years, the mobile ecosystem as a whole, from a VC and an investment perspective, has been in a slightly um, weird place, to be honest. That would be my, that would be my sort of take on it. And, and as I said, a lot of the no's I had were not necessarily because they think Tapdac's a bad idea, um, or a bad product. Um, we obviously have great traction and things like that that they could see, but it was more we just don't necessarily know where the industry is headed at the moment. Right, yeah. I mean, I remember over the last couple of years just the bloodbath of ad tech in San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, these these companies would come out of nowhere. They'd have yeah. these crazy offers where they'd just burn all their money, giving, yep. giving it away to developers in hopes of getting a critical mass. Exactly. And they could never get that one whale of a game or app or whatever, and then they would just either fold or get acquired by somebody else. Yeah. And that's just... Yeah. I'll never forget speaking to the... Um, one of the conversations I'll never forget, actually, was speaking to founder of Flurry. Yep. And uh, he said to me, you'll never find, never find another company in any industry that can grow from $0 of revenue to $100 million of re- revenue faster than ad tech. And equally, you'll never find a company that can go from $100 million in revenue to $0 in revenue faster than ad tech. And, and this is true. You, you've seen an immense explosion in mobile ad networks and ad, ad exchanges with crazy valuations. They don't own any of the inventory themselves. They're just arbitraging it. But, but mobile advertising and a lot, a lot of areas within the mobile ecosystem is so opaque that it's very difficult for people to to be honest, to pick the good businesses from the really quite bad ones. Right. Um, and I think that that level of um, knowledge is starting to mature, hence why I think you, you are now seeing this yeah, big bloodbath and a lot of decent companies um, get acquired for a lot less than probably their previous valuation. So, you know, that, that for me was, uh, was probably the biggest challenge was actually we, I know we're genuinely a, a a, a platform for independent developers. We were independent developers ourselves. Um, we have a good platform and people get a lot of value from it. But you do get bracketed and put into the same same sort of tray, if you like, as, as other companies that perhaps haven't performed as well or as ethically. So right. that for me was the biggest challenge in our latest fundraise. Yeah. Um, to, but as I, to, but as, I, as I said, no is just a, fun, is a function. You sort of get used to it. Getting yourself away from... Uh, you know, you're one of a hundred and, and di- exactly. explaining how you're different. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, TapDAC is very well uh, spoken about. You know, it's, it, mm. people who in the Blue Cloud community, at least, they're very high up on TapDAC. Yeah. And one question someone asked, uh, because I posted this in the group and I said, hey, do you have any questions? And someone asked if there are any notable success stories that you have or that you want to share, both big or small. Yeah. So, um we have quite a few, and actually they, they vary massively in size. So um, one of our biggest success stories for sure is, is uh, David from Absolute Games, who's sort of used us now for a long time. He obviously runs this sort of publishing, uh, publishing company through Absolute, and they've been you know, immensely successful with the amount of 
features they've secured and, and top charting games. You know, they've experimented a lot on influencer marketing. And cross-promotion for them has been, or for David, has been a vital strategy in boosting applications up into the, into the top charts and onto the trending search. He's, he's always someone that um, a lot of other developers would come and say, I'm trying to build a portfolio of applications. Do you have any good case studies um, in that sense? And then equally, a really interesting case study is a company called Funstage, who are a big, big social casino company based in Vienna, Austria. And these are the, these are the type of company that would be competing with the likes of Zynga. And they use us to cross-promote their most valuable users around their own portfolio or their own network. So almost at the point of churn, um, which is obviously metrics that they track, they will show a cross-promotion that could be in a deeply integrated native format or it could be an interstitial at the end of, say, your third role on a roulette wheel when they know that you as a user are most likely to churn. And they will keep their most valuable users, a.k.a. whales, within their network that way. Right. And they've, yeah, that, that's had a big impact for, for them in terms of the value that they can retain within their network. Um, so those, those would be the two best that spring to mind. But there are other, you know, we have a very broad range from fitness developers to productivity applications to, um, as I said, gaming. Cherry Pick Studios are another great example of a sort of mid-sized publisher using us as well. So um, I could go on for days and days. And <laughs> I, I love all the developers very dearly that use us. Yeah, well, I, I think it's, it's always really interesting too with what you guys have is that there, I think there's this mentality, at least with a lot of the, the members in our community that like it's indie developers in this in bucket one and publishers are in bucket two mm -hmm. and you either mm -hmm. need to be an indie developer or you're a publisher. And what's, what's interesting about tap deck and especially how you describe with absolute and some others yep. is that you can, you can become like a mini publisher just yep. by using that framework. What it really, yep. the, the value I really see in it is just the ability to control where you want to push something when you want to push them. Yep. And that's something that, you know, we've we've bolted things together for years using yeah. all these other ad networks, yeah. and it's it's just been a, a miserable experience. But, you know, once you get something like TapTac installed, even as a small indie developer, you can start to use that to aggregate control patterns and maybe, you know, team up with five other indie developers and say, hey, let's exactly. create this mini syndicate and – Exactly that. We all do it up. So I, yeah. know, I think that's that's a really interesting opportunity, especially as publishing becomes more popular. Absolutely. And, and you know what was even more interesting for us as a company to learn was we started very much for your individual developers, but actually you realize how effective cross-promotion and direct deals become because naturally then the use of our technology started with the independent developers, who, who are the people actually, I believe, build the most innovative content. But it moved further up the chain to people like Funstage over in Vienna, who are a team of 400 people using the same tech that you built for independent developers. But they equally get a huge amount of value from it. Um, so that, you know, that for me has been, I suppose, been an absolutely amazing learning. Yeah, there's this. I have like a a, a mental graph in my head that I wish I, I could draw out, where it's there's like this inflection point of quality with an app. Yeah, and. At that point, cross-promotion all of a sudden becomes very, very powerful. And before that point, cross-promotion can actually be a detriment, in my opinion, to your mm -hmm. revenue bottom line mm -hmm. because you know, you're giving up potentially a, C a CPI install yep. for advertising. Yep. And a lot of people don't realize that you need to, you need to have a an app that is of a certain quality. Definitely. But once you have it, cross-promotion becomes this amazing tool. Yeah. The same way publishing works for certain apps and doesn't work for other apps. 
And the the first question to, to ask yourself as an indie developer is, is my app good enough to, to both receive and give cross-promotion installs? Yep. Absolutely. One of the things I'd add there as well, which which actually I suppose ironically is something we're working really hard on, and it's not really well, I suppose, well tracked across the industry, is the sort of user LTV, but from an ad perspective. So yes, you have a CPM and you have a CPI, um, and those are sort of a derivative of an impression, right? Um, but what you don't know is how much is a specific IDFA, in other words, one of your users, how much is that user actually netting you through seeing an impression? Because if you can drill down on a user-by-user user basis, one of the things we're trying to get to is programmatic sort of mediation and cross-promotion in the same platform. Mm. In, other, in other words, we can say, if, if this particular user we know is, is roughly going to net you, let's say, 50 cents over a two-week lifetime, then the reality is you probably shouldn't be showing them an impression right? Um, you should be showing them cross-promotion to retain them in your network. But it's very hard to, and what a lot of developers don't have, in fact, I haven't really seen any developers do it except for people like Supercell, it's very hard to sort of extrapolate that data and then use it to actually make a decision on which inventory you're going to show them. But one of the things we're working on um, at TapDAC sort of behind the scenes is, is exactly that. It's actually saying that when your CPM falls below a certain number for High, highly valuable users, we should automatically be showing them a cross-promotion to another one of your applications as opposed to showing them an ad for Clash of Clans or Clash Royale, um, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a really hard problem to solve, but one we believe will add a huge amount of value to you know, publishers and indie developers uh, when it launches. I, I think that's – I agree with that a lot because yeah. I think – for some reason, I don't see a lot of small group partnerships in the indie developer world. I don't see a lot of a group, you know, five independent developers all getting together and saying, "Hey, we all have apps of the same caliber. Let's let's do some sort of cross promotion campaign within this small group." And I think one of the reasons why that doesn't happen is because it's hard to measure who's quote unquote pulling their weight. Exactly, and and an, an install is not actually an install. You know, there's. You can have an install that's worth ten cent versus one that's worth three bars. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> so, if, as, if you, as you if, say, yeah, if you can measure that, if you can solve that problem, all of a sudden these partnerships become more transactional. Which, in the developer world, that tends, you know, it's a very logical group of people for the most part. You know, myself yeah. being one of them. Where yeah. if you can make, if you make the deal based on math, you'd, you'll make deals all day. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What have you seen since? You guys, I mean, since 2013, a last change in the App Store, what would you say some of the biggest changes and adaptations you've had to make with TapDAC have been? Um, so from TapDAC's perspective, it's been a real focus on, I suppose, the learning that actually the bigger companies don't necessarily want, want to trade their users because they are the people who can attribute an actual value to that person. Um, and I suppose what was detrimental to us, a good understanding, was all of a sudden a lot of the users being traded in TapDAG, and this would have been a year ago, 18 months ago, were highly engaged users, so very good, I suppose, from an impression basis. But for bigger developers, they were, they were not necessarily valuable in terms of in-app purchases and things like that. So we had to try and you know, develop different systems um, and, and bucket different users differently, I suppose. Um, as opposed to put high high value users alongside low value users, so that was one that we spent a lot of time sort of stripping out and um, and sort of rethinking, and that's been I suppose that's really been 
a uh, derivative of the maturity of the App Store now. The App Store is becoming a much more mature platform, in my opinion. Sure, it's still got a long, long way to go, um, but it, it's certainly a lot easier to, I suppose, get the data that is really important and then action that data as well. So from, from my perspective, from a business um, challenge, that would have been quite a difficult one because developers, you know, the bigger developers were saying, you know, we don't want to, an install, as I said, is not an install. There are very different values. and We don't want to trade our most valuable users for invaluable users or, or users that aren't valuable um, without necessarily knowing. So from my perspective, that was a um, real challenge. But from an independent developer's perspective, I think um, what's exciting, well, I suppose what's been exciting in the last year or so, and we were sort of just touching it before this call, is, was the sort of rise of, of the influence of marketing. Mm. Yeah, it's. I think it's that whole world is is something that, like we were talking about, is just unbelievable. And it's oh, it's just as you as you talk about this, it makes you realize it's it's almost an inversion of the indie developers tend to think about users as everyone's the same. Yeah. And then these top grossing games or the biggest games with the yeah, huge yeah, lifetime yeah. value, like it's so individualized, and there's yep. so much demographic and per, like personal IDFA targeting and it makes you realize that to get those big LTVs, you have to know exactly who you're going after and be able to get them really well. Exactly. And isn't it crazy how a developer, in fact, this is what's happening now. You know, Every single developer that could be using a, another ad network or a traditional ad network, which, and which, by the way, are, are brilliant networks, companies like Chartboost, AdMob, et cetera, et cetera, AppLovin, they're all great for monetization, um, however, you as an independent developer could have just sold effectively a user worth five bucks to you. You didn't know it. Mm. Instead, you've cashed them out for cents. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, <laughs> it's, it's just a uh, a blind kind of everyone's exactly. You know, besides maybe like trying to target down some countries, but even most people don't even go that far. Exactly. Yeah. So really. And the ad networks will never do it. It needs to come from a different platform. And to be honest, someone like us or someone similar um, that says, you know, only show a third-party ad to a user who's worth less than a dollar to me. Because else, otherwise, it's, it's just it's a bad use of your inventory to sell that user for cents, which is what it would be through an impression. Right. Are you guys doing anything on the, on the buy side? No, not at the moment. Got it. Cool. No. Um, that's cool. And I, I was going to ask you what you guys are doing, uh, to get ready for 2017, but it kind of sounds like you, you, you've gone over that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, for us, our, our big one is the way we see it and the way I've always seen it is there are three key pillars to building a successful application and then further than that, a successful app business. So with multiple applications and those are acquisition. So the obvious, obviously getting used in the first place retention so then retain those users as best you can and then monetization now we at TAMDAC have focused really on the former two so the acquisition and retention piece and what we feel like we need to offer our developers is the third piece so monetization and so what we're working on at the moment is is basically what we're calling is full inventory management whereby um, you give your inventory and you manage that inventory through one platform because if you could, if you do it through one platform as we've sort of just alluded to, it, you can get your inventory to work a lot more efficiently for you. So what we're building out at the moment is, media, is, is a mediation layer, which we're going to add into TapDAC. And 
hopefully, um, you know, the aim of the product is that you, we will then allow developers or enable developers to do that totally programmatically. So as I said, cross-promote your most valuable users, but then monetize your, um, your other users through mediation. Mm. And that's something that we're aiming to launch sort of beginning of Q4 this year. And that will obviously take us into 2017. And the real focus is then going to obviously be growing that. Yeah, and then, I mean, that, that kind of dovetails into starting to test the, the, the world of mobile web and social traffic and exactly. influencer world, which is when you're going to go buy an island and <laughs> send us all a postcard and say it was, it's been real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I'm certainly loving, loving the journey. And I've always said whichever, whichever route gives us the best opportunity to have an impact in the mobile world, then that's the one we'll take. Yeah, man. One question I have is uh, I, I uh, interviewed Simon Crack a couple weeks yep. ago, and uh, I'm really interested what it's like being in the UK versus being over in the US in yep. the mobile world. So I think um, certainly the majority of our user base is in the US. I think building uh, – I'm one of the great believers, though, that you can truly build a, a tech company wherever you are in the world. Tech insinuates that you should be able to do that as well. Um, and some of the biggest developers we have, as I said, are based in totally different countries to both the UK and the US. For some reason, Austria is one that's really popular on TapDAC. And the companies like iTranslate, who are an incredibly successful indie developer, um, they're based in Austria. FunStage are based in Austria. So Austria, and there are plenty of different havens um, for applications. For me, the, the biggest um, difference between the UK and the US is is one of mindset and that's UK I find to be much more risk averse and I think that's that goes or, or trickles through everything from the actual entrepreneur's mindset of what they can achieve um, versus I suppose the VCs that the value of those companies as well whereas the the US there also seems to be a lot more liquidity they've had the tech IPOs the multi multi-billion dollar IPOs which have created literally tens of thousands of millionaires from the tech industry. And that money is then funneled back through um, into other tech businesses. So there is definitely a lot more capital to play with in, in the U.S., in the Bay Area and, and the Valley. Um, but equally, there's a lot more competition because of it. Do you travel so, much to the U.S.? Yes, almost every month. Okay, yeah. cool. So I have, I've seen you know, a really nice perspective on both. With that said, London is a, I think it's a superb place to build a company. I think the UK and Europe is as well. Um, I can't speak for Asia simply because I've not really traveled there much. But, it, you know, Europe, Europe is a massive talent pool as well. And there are some superb companies being built, being built in Europe, at least to say, you know, King and Supercell, two of the biggest app publishers are both based in, uh, in Scandinavia, right? Right. Yeah, that's right. The, uh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm going over to Europe in September, so I'm really excited to oh, meet, awesome. meet a bunch of developers. I'll be in Amsterdam, so very uh, cool. Amsterdam's great. Yeah, it'll, it'll be cool. It'll be cool. What's your uh, what's your guys' offices like? So funny to say, we've just moved into brand new offices that we've kitted out, um, and they're they're awesome. They're very casual. We have you know two banks of desks that can sit up to about twenty twenty five people. Um, two nice meeting rooms. We've got a you know basically a play area where we chill out, hang out, and throw. Or try and throw parties, but when a tech company tries to throw parties, it usually ends up being fairly mundane and boring. But <laughs> uh, we try our best. So no, it's it's a very um it's a very creative space. We are not your traditional nine to five company. 
I'm sure like any other tech company out there that, you know, we are very flexible in terms of working and things like that. Everyone knows, everyone is incentivized, one, through equity. Um, and because of that, everyone knows what we want to achieve as a company as well. So I think that gives you the opportunity to be a lot more flexible and build much more creative spaces to do your work from. Yeah, a lot of aligned forces in there, I bet. Exactly. Cool. I've got two more quick ones, and then we'll yep. uh, we'll get some contact info and wrap it up. Uh, yep. The first one along the lines of an office is, I always think about this, but if someone was going to walk in to your office, just knock on your door tomorrow, yep. and, and they were amazing at one particular thing, one skill set or whatever, what would what would you want them to be able to do? Without question, would be an unbelievable data scientist. Hmm. This is one of those um, one of those sort of job titles, or um, that a lot of people hear and, and don't really understand what they do. Um, but actually, if if you apply that to sort of an independent developer, if you were working with a data scientist for even six months to a year, as we sort of discussed throughout this call. They would be able to understand things like, you know, the LTV of your users. Um, as I said, they'd be able to build algorithms about which users should be seeing which ads. In other words, which ones are they going to convert most highest on? Because there's every possibility that um, there are some people, even though your average click-through ratio on a banner is, say, 1% and less versus an interstitial, which could be 8% and higher, there's nothing to say that a particular user doesn't convert much better on a banner than they would a an interstitial sure that's the averages show that interstitials would perform better but actually as we've mentioned on an individual by individual basis there's i i think i believe and actually it's been proven that there's a lot of money to be left on the table and we've brought in a data scientist we did it earlier this year that understanding and that's the type of understanding that we want to bring back to the independent 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 developer community as well so for me data science when you work with them and you understand the power, the power of data, and then how best to interpret it to your advantage. It's unbelievably powerful. I remember the first time I walked into an office and sat down with a data scientist, like the resident yeah. data scientist at a big gaming company, and I, yeah. my jaw hit the floor. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely mind blowing. Truthfully, it was like and- they could look at the same stuff I've been looking at for years, and in ten minutes they could come up with. 15 results that I yeah. would have no idea what they're talking about. And they could make it like, oh, just do this, do this, do this. This is your best country. You can spend this. Yeah, like, exactly. 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 Yeah. That's the type of thing they can do is actually your best users, even though you get most of the traffic from the US, you should be spending a lot more on acquiring them from Germany because those are the users that actually spend the most amount of money in your application. And you're just like, so I've been wasting all this money buying users that look, look like money but it's just volume in the U.S., whereas actually my ROI is 4x what it might be in Germany um, than it is in the U.S. And it's that type of understanding that it's inc- you know that's so so valuable. I know. I I often um, the marketer in me is always always asking myself why aren't data scientists just going over to Facebook advertising and affiliate yeah. marketing all day, and uh-huh. then you actually go and have have lunch with a data scientist and you immediately realize why that's never yeah. happened. Yeah, they are they are wired very very differently. Yeah. Yeah. But they're amazing. All the data scientists I've ever yeah. met are honestly superb individuals and and highly intelligent. Yeah, definitely. Uh last question, if you were going to give a graduation speech to a bunch of undergrads at university, what would the title of that speech be? 
Oof, that is a very good question. The title of that speech would be, you are, it would be five, five, a handful of people will change your life. The hardest part's finding them, or very few of us would find them. And I would probably, um, off the back of it, that type of title, speak about, for me, how important it's been following a passion. Um, reason being, there are so many challenges that come your way as an entrepreneur on the entrepreneurial journey. Um, if you weren't passionate about it, it would be very easy once you hit some of these challenges that honestly at the time do seem insurmountable. They seem absolutely impossible to get through. It's very likely you would probably give, give up. But I believe if you follow your passion, you develop this level of persistence that, that you can't otherwise really generate. And the reason I mention that is for me, I can literally pinpoint a number of different people throughout my career that have made a massive, massive difference. And I would never have met them um, had I given up on some of the challenges I had very early on in the career. And that goes from everything to network to investment um, or even just to knowledge as well. So, so for me, it would be to, you know, choose the people that you spend most of your time with in a business capacity very wisely. Um, they really do rub off. Um, but but you know don't be shy about networking. Find a passion and stick to it. That's great advice, Ted. This has been awesome, man. And I Thank know you. how valuable your time is, and I, I really appreciate this. I think people are going to get a lot out of this. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you and learn more about TapDeck? So, um, well, I mean, if people want to reach out direct, you're very welcome to do that, and that's just Ted at TapDeck dot com. Um, equally, Instagram and Snapchat are my two most preferred social networks now. Um, so my username at Snapchat is just Teddy Nash and then my Instagram username is Ted Nash. So fairly straightforward and obviously would, would love to field any questions if there are some. Terrific. We'll put all that info in the show notes so people can easily click on it. But Ted, man, thanks a lot. This has been great sure. and uh, best of luck to you guys. And maybe we'll, we'll be able to get a beer when I'm over in, over in Europe. Definitely. Would love that. Thanks so much, Carter, again. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Ted. This has been another episode of the Blue Cloud Podcast. For more information on app development, ebooks, reliable source codes, and more, expand your mobile knowledge by going to bluecloudsolutions.com.